Uh, well, here's what we're going to do today. You need to buckle up. There's a seatbelt somewhere. You need to buckle up because this is one of those passages of Scripture that it's, it's almost impossible not to feel the rush of wind in your hair as you get into it. Um, today, we're, we're going to take a look at the most famous conversion in history, all right? Whenever the church talks about the big one, y'all, this is the big one, and this has stood the test of time. This is, this is the salvation moment that is the most celebrated throughout all of Christendom. Um, it is such a reference point, and I'll show you this at the end, but this, this moment is such a reference point that we often compare our own salvation up against this one. Now, having said that, while it is familiar to us, it can also be very easily misunderstood by us. And that's what often happens by, with familiar things. You know, they're so familiar to them that, that you kind of lose the meaning. And that, that could be very dangerous with this passage because if we don't understand what really happened here, we could end up taking a long, lonely, dark walk down a spiritual alley to a big dead end. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with the person who gets converted, all right? Let's take a look at the man himself from Acts 9, uh, verses 1 and 2, and I'll read it for you. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering murderous threats. He was eager to kill the Lord's followers. That's everyone who's following Jesus. He went to the high priest requesting letters to, to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Father, we thank you that we do not live, spiritually speaking, we do not live on bread alone, but every word that comes out of your mouth. So, God, this is your word to us today, and I pray, God, that we would ingest this today in the name of Jesus Christ. God, nourish us, convict us, uh, strengthen us, Lord God. Father, do what only you can do. Be who only you can be through your word to us. In Jesus' name, by your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, um, when I was growing up, one of the churches that we attended had an amazing pastor, okay? I mean, this, he was one of the greats. And I, I could give you a big list of all the ways that this guy was great, and by the end, you'd all be going, oh, man, he was fantastic. But I'll just give you the short version. Um, this man started the church with 50 people, and within a few years, the church grew to, grew to well over 1,000, okay? And when I say well over 1,000, 15, 1,800 people. It was incredible. But it wasn't just the numbers that was so amazing. It was the spiritual climate. This was the most spiritually alive group of people I have ever been around. I mean, people, I remember one time my aunt and uncle visited from England. And, um, you know, England, at least back in the day, was kind of known for being a place where you could go to church and, and, you know, you could participate in worship and all kinds of things. You didn't hear the gospel very much in England. So they were Church of England, didn't go a whole lot. They would come into church, and for them it was like, well, you know, we'll go to church because you guys go to church, and we're visiting all the way from across the pond. And they would come into this worship service, and they would just weep the whole way through. Now, now these are people who, you know, I mean, 
they really don't know Christ, but they're so touched by the Spirit of God. That was this church that I was in. Every Sunday, it was just profound. And so, to fast forward to the end, years later, this pastor retired. And in the years that followed his retirement, people in the church, me included, when we talked about this pastor, you would think that he literally walked on water every Sunday. You would think he was the greatest leader that ever led anybody anywhere, never made a mistake, everything he touched turned to gold, you know, everything came to life, and of course that wasn't true, right? So, so what happened? Well, what happened is a simple phenomenon. The man became a legend to us. And the problem with legends is that legends are always overblown. They're always bigger than life. With a legend, a person who's great that they're always over-glorified, and someone who's evil, they're always over-vilified. That's the problem with legends. It, they always do that. Well, almost that is. Almost always does a legend overblow the person, but when we get to this man in Acts chapter 9, Saul is one person in whom the legend really fits. The story really fits the man. Y'all, in, in, in uh, Acts, we find him described early on as one of the worst possible men that ever walked the planet. Uh, I'll prove it to you. Acts 7.58 says that when Stephen, this beautiful man of God that we met earlier in, in Acts, right? Stephen, who has just served the Lord in humility, great ministry, when he is executed for following Jesus Christ and just loving and living out in the power of the Holy Spirit, when he is executed, Saul was there. And Saul, it says in Acts 7, was giving approval to his death. Saul is cheering. Saul is excited. Kill this guy. This is Saul early, from his first moment. In Acts 8.3, it's only a few verses later, he's progressed. Acts 8.3 describes him as a man who is prowling and lurking about, seeking to destroy the church. Acts 9, what I just read to you, describes Saul as a man breathing out murderous threats. You can't even do that in our culture anymore, but I mean, he's breathing out murderous threats, seeking again to destroy the church, zealous to kill all Christians. He has even gotten written permission, okay, legal permission, authority, right, to go out and to drag every Christian he can find, both men and women, okay, so both, both genders are equally as in danger, to drag them back in chains to Jerusalem. Do you know what Saul is trying to do here? And we've got to make sure we understand this. Saul is trying to exterminate a people group. Y'all know what that's called? That's called genocide. Okay, when, when, you, when you pull up, I mean, Wikipedia this, okay, Google this. Pull up a list of people, you know, your genocide list. It's not that long a list, but you know whose names are on there? People like Idi Amin. People like Adolf Hitler. So here we are in Acts chapter 9, and we must understand this man, Saul, is a very, very bad man, okay? Now, if this was the 70s, because we used to do this in the 70s, when somebody said, hey, Saul's a really bad man, everybody else would say, how bad was he? What? Y'all, I'm getting ready to tell you how bad he was, okay? How bad was he? Y'all, well, I, I told you just part of how bad he is, but y'all, Saul, Saul is a man he is genocidal. He is on the wrong side of the Lord. Now, let's make sure we understand what God is up to. 
In Acts chapter 9, God has begun a new work, right? He's founding a new community. He's called all these people who are lost out of darkness into light. He's calling it to be a community, to be a family, to be a mission, to be a force. And what they're going to do for the rest of their lives is they are going to live for Jesus. They are going to love for Jesus. They are going to share Jesus Christ. There are problems all over this world. These people are the solution. This is what God is up to. But look at Saul. Saul is going around like a rabid animal. He is on a seek and destroy mission for all of these people God is raising up in this moment. So what we have right now is we have got two powerful forces that are opposing one another, all right? And and both of them cannot coexist. One of them has got to win. So the big question in this moment is, what happens next? Who's going to win? And I can give you a hint, all right? Y'all want a hint? Good, because it's a fun hint, all right? Here's the hint. It's an encouraging hint. If you can't figure it out after this, well, you'll just have to listen to the whole sermon, all right? Here's the hint. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. God, you are high. Okay. That's the hint, all right? So just hold on to that, all right? So here's what happens next. And my solo career ended right there. All right. Acts 9, 3 through 9. As Saul was approaching Damascus on his mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. That deserved the sip of water that was so good. Okay, you, you, talk about, you talk about a wild twist of events here, okay? Saul is on his mission. He's almost at Damascus. Now, now, just so you know the mileage, Saul has walked about 150 miles. It's taken him about a week. He is almost there when suddenly Jesus appears to him in such a supernatural and personal way that nobody gets what's happened other than Saul. That's what you call intimate, and that's what you call supernatural. Jesus sweeps this man off of his feet and blinds him. And I love what John Stott says. At this moment, Saul is at the feet of his conqueror. Jesus asks him in a thunderous voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then a moment or two later, Saul is led into Damascus like, like, well, like a blind man, right? He's a blind man. So he's led just tottering into Damascus, unable to see. Now, we all agree on the facts because there's really no mystery here. There's nothing to, there's no lines to read between, but it's really how we interpret what just happened that affects our personal life. In other words, if we misinterpret what just happened, we will misapply this to our lives. And you know where we could end up? We could end up in trouble. And when I say trouble, I mean life bondage kind of trouble. So you want to know what the mistake would be? 
This would be the mistake we could, read, uh, we could make reading this passage. We could read this and conclude that we know what God is doing, and what God is doing is He is smiting Saul. God is, boom, crushing Saul. And it would be easy to do here. Why? Well, first of all, you've got blinding light, okay? So we could say, oh, yeah, the blinding light. Now, that's lightning from heaven, zap, right? And then, of course, with divine blindness, you know, uh, divine blindness is really the opposite of divine healing, so God's getting even. Especially when you look down to verse 16, where Jesus says to Ananias, I'm going to show Saul how much he must suffer for my name. We could come to that conclusion. Man, God's getting him. And listen, if, if that's what's going on here, if th- this is what God is doing, we got to get over it, right? I mean, it is what it is, right? I mean, as M.C. Sam- Hammer says, you can't touch this, right? It's God at work. So, you know, whatever he does, I mean, it, you, this is what you're left with. There's nothing you can say about it. But listen, if that is the case, if God is smiting this guy, man, if, if this is God's judgment on Saul, I tell you, it could leave us in a real pickle in our spiritual lives. Because, see, we go out of here and we live every day and we're trying to follow Christ, but we live not knowing when we're going to cross the line that's going to end up in our judgment. You know, I mean, Saul missed it. I mean, maybe we could. We're left paranoid. We're left anxious about about our spiritual lives. Are we doing enough to please God? Are, Are we not doing enough? You know, I mean, is God happy? Is God sad? Uh, I mean, we, we never know where we are. So I got good news for you. Acts chapter 9 is not God smiting Saul. You know what it is? It's actually the exact opposite of that. Acts chapter 9, Saul's Damascus Road, all of it, from the blinding light to the blindness, all of it is God's amazing grace in a man's life. And I'll tell you why. Number one, if God, okay, if God was going mafia here and God was going to whack Saul, he'd be dead. Okay, I mean, that's just the end of the story, right? Acts chapter 5, Ananias Ananias and Sapphira, God's judgment fell, they're burnt toast, all right? That's just it, right? So, so the theory of God striking back angrily at Saul, blasting him with blindness, it just doesn't work. This isn't a case of, oh, mess with me and you'll never see. That's not what God is doing here, okay? This is also, there's also a small theory out there that, you know, God's kind of acting as torturer here. Saul, follow me now into the pit of despair. But y'all, that doesn't work either. This is amazing love. This is grace. This is compassion. Look at what Jesus does here. First of all, what does he hit Saul with? Blinding, dazzling light. You know what that is in Scripture? You can word search this like 99.85% of the time. When dazzling light shows up like this, it is simply the glory of God. And here we know who's in this light. Who is it? It is the resurrected, glorified Jesus. Saul is literally struck blind by the goodness and the dazzling love of God. And then look what Jesus does next. Jesus introduces himself. Saul, guess what? I am Jesus. Now, this does two things for Saul, okay? First of all, it blows up a little notion, a little mistaken notion that Saul has been living with. Why is Saul after these Christians to begin with? Because he believes that Jesus Christ is dead. 
So he's like, you know what these people are doing? They've stolen his body. They're putting on this show. They're trying to deceive people. They're trying to start a cult movement and, you know, get a bunch of money and do all this other stuff. This whole thing is a big lie. Well, yeah, it is until Jesus shows up and goes, hey, guess what? I'm Jesus. Suddenly, Saul realizes this Jesus is alive. And in the next moment, he realizes that his mission what, he has, what he's pouring all of his life into, what he is consumed and obsessed with, exterminating this people, he's realizing how evil and how misguided all of it is. So what Jesus just did was he just flipped Saul's world upside down. And then we've got the blindness here. Now, what's going on with the blindness is this. Up till this point when he meets Jesus, Saul has already been blind. Saul was blind a long time before he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. Saul was completely blind spiritually to the truth, to who God is, to who Jesus is, to what the Holy Spirit is doing. You cannot be any blinder than Saul is in this moment. So what happens is Jesus just goes ahead and says, you know what, I'm going to let the physical match the spiritual for just a little while. And what it does too to Saul, and it's so beautiful, so beautiful. Lord, let it happen to me again and again and again. It also humbles Saul. He is completely humbled. That's partly how we know it's amazing grace. Here's another way we know this is all amazing grace, because of what happens to the man next. Um, we read in Acts 9, uh, verse 9 and 11, that Saul, when he's led into Damascus, he goes into solitude, right? Now, from the verse, I, when I finished off at nine, he ate nothing for, for three days. Kind of sounds like, you know, Saul's just too, too upset to eat. Man, I can't eat. My stomach's messed up. You know, I, I'm just too wrecked by what happened. It sounds like that could be the case. But when you get to verse 11, Jesus tells Ananias, this guy has been seeking my face. He's been praying for three days. Y'all, Saul goes from this murderous rampage into fasting and prayer and just seeking Jesus. I think some amazing grace is going on in somebody's life here. And then Jesus sends someone to Saul, a man named Ananias, to lay his hands on Saul and pray for him so that he can see. And, and we see that it happens, right? And I'll read that in just a minute. But, and, and the inference here, and it's a strong inference out of the Greek, is that when Saul sees, it's not just that he can, he's going, hey, that's Mark and Brian and Shiloh on the front row. It's not just physical sight that Saul has now, it's spiritual sight. This man has, has like a spiritual eagle's eye. And we see from the rest of his life, this dude is dialed in. He can see things spiritually. So sight is restored truly for the first time completely. But then we know it's amazing grace because of something else Jesus says to Ananias. In verse 15, he says, go and pray, lay hands, pray for this guy you know, given this information, and I'll tell you why I'm doing this, Ananias, because Saul is my chosen instrument. I mean, is, Brian, seriously, if Jesus came to you and said anything, could anything top chosen instrument? I mean, to be the servant, to be the mouthpiece, to, to, to be the vessel for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Look at what God has done in this man's life. I mean, this is the ultimate honor. Now, I know we still have verse 16. We still got to do something, uh, you know, with that. And you could say, well, Steve, all that sounds really great. But we do have verse 16 where Jesus says, I am going to show Saul how much he must suffer for my name. Now, all that stuff you said was great. But I tell you, that sounds like a statement of revenge if I ever heard one. But it's not. You know why? Because that is the promise 
for everybody who follows Jesus Christ. Truly and honestly, folks, when, when we follow Jesus Christ, we're really walking with Him, persecution's going to come our way. I mean, let, let me read you a verse. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, okay, and this is how absolute it is. Everyone, okay, there you go, that's absolute. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will suffer persecution. And see, the fact of it is, when we step onto the front lines for Jesus Christ, it will bring some forms of persecution. Now, it could be mild persecution, like rejection, mocking, you know, somebody picking on you. It could be very severe persecution. But, but the point is, persecution follows us when we really believe. And that's what the Apostle Paul is telling us here in 2 Timothy 3.12. Oh, yeah, and speaking of the Apostle Paul, another beautiful point here is that the Apostle Paul just so happens to be the same Saul that we started out with. He, it turns out he is the same guy. Now, later on, Saul has to go by a different name, Paul, because the Saul doesn't fit him anymore. That, that's why there's a name change. Um, Saul, here's what Saul means. Okay, here's, here's the name he starts out with. Saul means... One who is asked for, right? One who is sought out, okay? Billy Joel fans, uh, in other words, Saul is, is a big shot, right? That's, that's who Billy Joel wrote the song for. That's what the name Saul means, just someone who is a big shot. You know what Paul means? Paul means little one, yeah. It means someone who is humble, someone who is surrendered. And so Paul really is not who, 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 he, who he used to be. He, he's even got to have a new name here because he's just a humble servant of Jesus Christ. So I'll read you the end of this story here, 17 through 19. It's beautiful. So Ananias went, and he found Saul. He laid his hands on him, and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Paul's eyes, and I think that's the eyes right here and the eyes of his heart, uh, from, from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then Saul got up, and he was baptized. Afterwards, he ate food and regained his strength. So he's filled with the Spirit of God, and, and, and uh, he, he's baptized. And then the rest of Saul's life, Saul who becomes Paul, the rest of his life is just about serving Jesus following Jesus, proclaiming Jesus, proving Jesus. He does this for the rest of his life. And it's just amazing grace because even though Saul persecuted Jesus, what does Jesus do? He picked Saul. He chose Saul. E even though Saul, uh, Saul sought to destroy God's people, Jesus sought Saul out and he saved his life. Y'all, that, that, that's grace, and that is absolutely amazing grace. Now, what's so humorous about all of this, you know, this, this whole Saul conversion, is that many of us really do, we measure our own salvation by it, and some of you already know what I'm talking about, but have you ever run, in, run into a person, and uh, they're talking about the moment they got saved, and they say, you know, when I met Jesus, I'll tell you, it was a Damascus Road experience. And what do they mean? I mean, you know, like fireworks went off and all kind of stuff. Most people, though, will say this, you know, when I met Christ, it really wasn't a Damascus Road experience. I mean, you know, it was profound, it was sweet, it was real, but, you know, there was no blinding light or voice from above, and, you know, it was just kind of a realization. It was a decision. It was a prayer. 
and, and I've really grown since, and it was kind of normal. And I just want you to know this about your salvation experience and my salvation experience. When it comes to the moment we meet Jesus Christ, you don't have to have any dramatic effects, right? I mean, Steven Spielberg doesn't have to show up with a movie truck and, you know, oh, everything goes crazy. It doesn't have to be externally just this dramatic outlandish thing. We don't have to have an external Damascus Road experience. But y'all, I will tell you this, every believer should have an internal Damascus Road experience. Y'all, when it comes to meeting Jesus Christ inside, it should be a very real personal encounter. More than a prayer. I mean, it ought to be a movement inside the heart. And I'll tell you, when we meet Christ, Saul goes on to model very beautifully. It ought to be followed by by a time of, 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 you know, even if it's just a moment, of real surrender to Jesus in penitence. You know, that's remorse and in faith. And then every believer, we ought to have a real call. We ought to hear a real call from Jesus into kingdom service. So what I'm saying to you about your experience with Jesus when you met him, it doesn't have to be supernatural on the outside, but folks, it ought to be supernatural on the inside. And the way you can tell if we really met Christ is about, is by what happens next. What takes place in us and through us in the days that follow us meeting Jesus Christ? What do we go on to live for the rest of our lives? I tell you, that's a measuring stick. Because, you see, it's like this with the gospel. Okay, here is what the gospel is. And here is how the gospel of Jesus Christ is supposed to play out in our lives. The gospel is God's amazing grace to you and me. It it is the favor, the grace, the love of God. In other words, we encounter a love so amazing so profound and so deep that we are literally resurrected on the inside. That, that's, that is what the gospel does to us. We come to life spiritually, and we are very, very different as a result of having prayed this prayer and welcomed this Lord into our life. Now, granted, okay, I'll say this, granted we aren't perfect, okay? Oh my gosh, we still have bad days. We still have bad seasons. I'll go ahead and say something that got me in big trouble one time, but I'll say it again. I might as well. I haven't been in trouble lately. But, you know, you know with, with, there, there are many things that can be wrong with us in regards to sin and character. Sometimes not everything that we would say is wrong with us, sometimes not all of it even gets fixed down here, right? Sometimes it doesn't. But I'll tell you one thing, the grace of God goes to work. And we begin now to reflect joy. We begin to, to, to move forward with kindness, generosity. We, we are a people, people look at us and they go, man, just love. These people just exude love. And, and we do have a new mission now. And that mission is that we live for one king. And we live for one cause. And we just go on to live out the love of God uh, to, to the world around us. And I'll tell you this with Jesus, it is a rich life on the inside and the outside. Jesus, you got it right when you said you came to give us life and and life to the full. This is our experience. 
And part of the reason this is our experience is goes to the words we heard today, because we don't live under condemnation anymore, you know? That's one of the beautiful things about Jesus. Sin brings co- condemnation. If you are not a believer and you're in this room today and you're going, man, I just feel so dark, I feel so condemned, there's a reason for that. It's called sin. That's what sin does. But as Christians, we never live under fear any longer. We don't live under that type of condemnation. Now, what we do is we live a life of obedience, okay? Obedience does come into the Christian life. But see, the obedience for someone who's been hit with the gospel is different from the other crowd, and I'm going to talk about the other crowd in a minute. But the difference, the obedience coming from us, it is a joyful obedience. Why is it a joyful obedience? Because we're in love with the one who gave the command, you know? We're in love with the one who's giving the orders. This is our papa. You know, we, we love to please him. And, and see, we go out to love our neighbors then out of love for him and with love from him. That is the gospel. That is what, boom, is just going off in Paul's life. Now, that there is an opposite uh, to the gospel, okay? It's a little thing that is a nasty little thing, and it's really not little, and it's called religion. Religion is the polar opposite of the gospel, okay? And, and religion, by the way, if you didn't know, Religion can happen to church folks, okay? Religion can happen to Christians. Now, religion is this. Religion is where we believe we will lose God's love, God's favor. We'll get on the wrong side of God if we don't live right, if we don't pray enough, you know, if we're not signed up for the certain thing, if we don't do certain duties, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there is obedience, just so you know, in the religious side. Okay, obedience is required in both. The only difference is the kind of obedience that comes out of religion is fear, you know? It's anxiety, it's, it's nervousness, you know? It's like a cat in a room full of rocking chairs, right? A long-tailed cat, or it's just, it's anxiety, it's nervousness, and I'll tell you this, it is a miserable existence. If you have ever done religion, I have. If you've ever done religion, it's terrible, right? And, and even when you do reach out to love your neighbors, you're not loving your neighbors. You know why? Because it's not about your neighbors. It's about you keeping that favor. And I'll tell you, you can tell the religious by their demeanor as well. You know, I said in the gospel, what do you see? You see joy, kindness, generosity, love. That's what you see. Well, with religion, you see some other things that aren't quite as attractive. Um, you, you see uptightness, you know, rigidity. You see franticness. Again, you see a lot of fear. You see sternness, nervousness. The religious also are a lot like Martha. They are about a whole lot of stuff, right? 101 Christian causes, and everybody better agree with them, right? Everybody better be a part of it. But it's just quick to sign up and quick to judge anybody who doesn't share their personal convictions. What is so ironic, though, about both the religious and the gospel side. One is that there's obedience in both, but the other one is this. This is a crazy irony. Both of them believe in Jesus Christ. That's the wild thing about religion and the gospel. Both groups affirm Jesus Christ as Lord. It's just that one group, the gospel group, they are being transformed by the love of God on the inside, and it's just leaking out everywhere. That's the first group. While the other group, again, is, you know, is just striving after God's love in everything they do. So here's where I want to land the plane today, okay? This morning, 
I want to call all of us out of group number two, okay? I want to call us all out of the religious side. And listen, if you've been doing this for more than five minutes walking with Jesus, chances are religion has probably happened to you a little bit, you know? It's, it's typically one of those things where, you know, like the, like the famous answer, who are the Pharisees? Well, you know, it's probably all of us, you know? That's usually the honest answer in some way. It's true of the religious. I mean, it can be all of us in some ways, but um, at least in small ways. But I'll tell you this, some of us are stuck, absolute, and God bless you, some of us are absolutely, you see, isn't that nice? See, the, it's the kindness and the generosity coming out. But, um, but listen, some of us are stuck in religion, all right? And I'm going to tell you exactly who you, no, I'm not going to do that, no. But you might say, well, Steve, how can you say some of us are stuck in religion? You don't know everybody in the room. Listen, wherever a family of God gathers, somebody's stuck in religion, okay? And, and I'll tell you how you can tell if you're in group number two. Now, I believe this is a little bit prophetic. I really do. One way today you can tell if you're, if you're a little bit stuck or majorly stuck in religion is this. If what I just said about the religious if that angered you, if that annoyed you, if that irked you, if that stirred you up in any way, you've got at least one foot in religion, okay? That's how you can tell. And I know it sounds funny, but I really believe that was from the Spirit of God. The Lord quickened me and just said, I want you to, I'm going to give you something that you can share with folks about religion. But, but it's very true. So listen, here's how we're going to end. And I didn't give y'all any time. Do y'all want to come up here? And, and I, I will kind of stall and all that stuff. But listen, here's what we're going to do. We're going to end this morning, and we've got folks who, who pray with you. Um, we call them altar ministers. They're going to come up front. And listen, if you need prayer on this, please come up front, okay? Please come up front and get some prayer. Man, these guys would love to pray with you about this. This is a simple prayer, right? Simple prayer to just break chains. But, but some of us don't need the prayer. We just need to step out of, of, you know, kind of the religious mire that we're in. We have got, uh, about a year ago, we removed the front row of pews all the way around for a reason, and it was to make room, to make room for kids to dance, to make room for people to respond. If you want to respond to the Lord today on some of this, y'all, we've got a whole bunch of room up here, and we've got some folks who are going to lead us in worship. They're already standing up. I'm already standing up. I'll tell you this, the water is great up here, okay? Y'all, the water is great. It's not too deep. Come on up here, wade in this water, and just enjoy the presence of the Lord. Let the Holy Spirit just meet you. Man, He loves you so much. God loves us so much. And there is no shame ever just stepping out and saying, Lord, here I am. Just here's this heart. Here's this mind. Here's this life, right? The only shame is staying where you are, right? Okay, so let me pray for us. Shiloh, would that give you all enough time? Okay, I'll pray for a second. We'll just, we'll just invite. Father, thank you so much for amazing grace. Lord, there is a reason why this is our, some of our favorite hymns. For some of us, it's our favorite hymn is because, God, it is a reality. The grace, the favor of God, Lord, we, we don't deserve it, but it doesn't matter. You give it. Lord, you, you, you just delight in lavishing love on us. We see ourselves in a whole bunch of ways. You see us as your children. And, Lord, the only way for us to live and to thrive to grow, Lord God, to be fulfilled. It's in Jesus. It is just being putty in your hands, Lord God, letting you shape and mold us. And Father, religion works directly against that. And Lord, I love it that you took a man who was so religious, showing us that God, if you can change Saul, Lord, you can change us. And so God, we don't wanna walk out of here today in fear. We don't wanna walk out of here with hard hearts. 
we don't want to walk out of here like, like Saul was at the beginning, just all full of himself. Father, we just want to surrender to the grace and the love that you have for us. So thank you, Lord. Oh, Holy Spirit, you're so welcome. You are so welcome here. Have your way with us. Just breathe on your people. Get on inside of these hearts. Lord, invade our personal space today in Jesus' name. Thank you. Father, we thank you for what you're doing, God. We thank you for what you are up to. I thank you that the Spirit of God is always at work. Lord, I thank you that you are always speaking to your people. Father, your light is always reaching out to us. God, you are always loving us. And so today, may we go out of this place with heads lifted high. Father, may we go out of here with hearts full, rejoicing in the amazing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the lavish love and the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for your people. They are a beautiful people. I thank you that they are yours today too, in Jesus' name. And may we live for no one else but you as we go in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.